You're listening to the Combinate Podcast, a show that connects you to the most important resource in the medical device and pharma industries, its people. My name is Subi Sedate. I'm a bioengineer, and for the last decade, I've sought to broaden my understanding in this industry and have been amazed at the wonderful people I've met and the insights they've given me. Each week, I sit down with leaders to discuss their expertise, the lessons they learned, and continue that mission. Whether you're a student, engineer, scientist, or marketer, you're sure to pick up advice and knowledge that you can apply to make an impact. Now on to the episode. On this episode of the Combinate Podcast, we had Dr. Kathy Walsh, Director and Principal at Quality Systems Now. Uh, Kathy Walsh is a scientist, a PhD biochemist with postdoctoral work turned quality system expert. Uh, She helps companies in regulated industries implement quality compliance solutions that help increase productivity and master the quality challenges in their marketplace. Uh, She's the author of Eliminating the Gobbledygook, Secrets to Plain Language Procedures. Kathy and I discuss her book at length moving from a PhD microbiologist to quality systems and technical writing, where most companies struggle in terms of procedures. We talk about plain language skills like active voice versus passive voice, process mapping, inference building, sentence parsing, document structure, and more. We talk about the origins and history of plain language, the history of fonts, and how to make for more efficient document reviews And we end off by talking about advice she has for writing technical documents and procedures. I hope you all enjoy this episode with Kathy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Combinate podcast. We are graced today by Kathy Walsh. Uh, the director and principal at Quality Systems Now. Uh, Dr. Walsh is a scientist, a PhD biochemist by training, uh, with, also, with uh, postdoctoral training turned uh, quality system expert. Uh, she helps companies in regulated industries design and implement quality compliance solutions that help increase productivity and master the quality challenges in their marketplace. Most recently, she wrote the book, Eliminating the Gobbledygook, Secrets to Writing Plain Language Procedures. Uh, she's joining us today from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome. G'day, how are you doing? And very well done, pronouncing the gobbledygook. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing well. It took a little bit of practice. I actually, uh, you know, I'm glad in your book that you mentioned, uh, you, you have like the Webster, uh, Webster yep. dictionary definition, because I thought it was a made up word. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah well, so Miriam, I had never heard Miriam's the word before. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, so welcome. The, the The Australian Open wrapped up this weekend. I'm a big tennis fan. How was it? In yeah, Melbourne? same here. And what a final for the men. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, lucky for you, it's summer over there. So, uh, you know, no wonder you're smiling here in Chicago. It's a little bit more dreary. <laughs> So I wanted to, I wanted to jump in, you know, I, I gave a, I gave a, a we'll call it like a, a 10,000 foot view of your, um, 
background, but you know, it's not every day that somebody uh, goes from, you know, expert in, in biochem to, to quality systems. And then, you know, quality systems is a wide field in of itself. And then you focus on writing good procedures of all things. And uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about your background? Absolutely. So it, it is a bit uh, unique, I guess, the career journey that I've had so far. Um, but yeah, so I did start with a, a PhD. I did all my um, undergrad and uh, uh, post-grad post uh, university at University of Newcastle. For those who don't know, Newcastle is uh, about an hour's drive north of Sydney in uh, Australia. And uh, then I actually did a postdoc in Quebec, Canada, of all places. And that was, that was a, a very uh, different um, culture coming from uh, hot and, uh, and windy sometimes to well, cold and windy. Um, and uh, so I was there for a year and, and we were working in a marine biology unit, actually. And so looking at um, photooxidation of all things. Um, and so I guess the, the main thing to say is the, the common thread through the, my earlier part of my career is actually my techniques. So I was, I was look, doing HPLC and GCMS, and uh, that actually took me through a variety of different projects. Um, and so um, I then returned, I returned to Melbourne and I've stayed in Melbourne um, for the duration. Um, and I came back to a second postdoc, uh, and that was in plant biology. Um, and again, doing some GCMS and uh, GC and picking up some genetic techniques, those sorts of things. And from there, I did a stint in consulting uh, as, a, uh, as a water catchment um, biologist. So my PhD and uh, my first postdoc was helpful in that. Uh, and the, but then quickly wanted to get away from the water biology actually, um, and uh, and went okay. Let's try let's try uh, pharmaceuticals. And to get into pharmaceuticals at that stage, I actually needed to go back into the lab and just be a QC chemist for for nine months, um, and uh, you know to to kind of um, get my qualifications to kind of come into pharmaceuticals. And uh, then got a position in an R and D department. And um, was there for seven or eight years. Um, and then uh, we went into consulting again. And so this time as a pharmaceutical consultant and I was with FarmOut for about eight years as well. Um, and I've had my own business now for four and a half years. So quality systems now. So I'm, I'm the director of that. Um, and we've now got a couple of consultants working for us. And um, we work primarily with pharma, medical device, medtech, biotech type um, type companies. So yeah, yeah. So what was what was your experience like, kind of going back, uh, becoming a, a, a QC chemist, and you know, sort of humbling after uh, you know working all the all the years, um, you know, to become sort of an expert in biochem. Yeah. So it was. It was actually a learning curve because the you, you go from um, something where you're encouraged to be free thinking, essentially, and um, to be creative in an experimental way, um, going to the rigor of this is QC, you will do this in the same way every time. And so I think it was actually good for me in, in looking back at it. It's, it's where I actually learned I need to follow this test method exactly the same way every time. I need to write the results exactly the same way. And it's just GMP 101. And at that stage, that was what I was learning. So 
But at the time, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> but, you know, after a couple of years in farming, you kind of just get it. You, you either, if you stay in farming, you, you just get it. Um, and that's what you, you need to do. So, um, and it just became automatic. So, yeah. And then, and then moving into R&D, did you find that there was <clears throat> more creativity or what was, what was that transition like? Yeah. So, um, one, it was, was nice to be in a, um, in an R&D kind of sphere where people were starting to think about being creative with a product, those sorts of things. At that stage, I, I was then learning about manufacturing. So manufacturing in terms of a pipeline, that front end uh, and, and developing uh, a product. Now, I was primarily doing um, pre-stability testing for products that had already been, you know, that had already been put down, made, manufactured, they're the test batches. So my life was for a couple of years was just stability testing, stability testing. Um, so um, yeah, and, but again, it was a, a huge learning curve. This is what you do that you learn all about that front end um, of the development process, which has actually been very very helpful later on in my career. Um, yeah, I was gonna. Sorry, I was just gonna ask you because, um, you know, your 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 training is pretty technical, right? And you you uh, you ended up in a place where you're focusing on compliance, uh, quality systems, uh, but in between you actually worked in a manufacturing site. How has yeah, that helped you? Correct. Um, it gives you a lot of insight. So particularly like when I go to clients now, um, I've got such a broad experience. So I understand the R&D guys who can't stand talking to some of the, the manufacturing guys and vice versa, um, and they just don't speak the same language. And sometimes I can just come in the middle and go, you're meaning this, I think. Yes, no. Oh, translate. This is what this means to them. And they go, oh, <laughs> that's what they mean. And it's just sometimes that happens. Um, other times it's just I can walk in and I can be my own SME. And it's just like you can look at a system and you go, yeah, I understand what you're doing in your situation. This is what you need to do. And I think um, I, I think because I've had that, it, at the time it looked a little chaotic. I, I was here and then I was there. But in the long run, I've actually got a really broad experience. Um, and when I was at, actually at Holsite and they had four changes of ownership, um, <laughs> which was a bit confusing, um, same product, same people, just different branding, I guess. Um, but at that stage, I also retrained. And so I, uh, I got a uh, post, uh, post-grad um, technical communication um, degree as well. And so that's when I started to go into the compliance, the QMS aspect. Um, you know how a lot of people in our fields, uh, they're usually science maths based. I'm actually science English. And so... Science what based? So most science people math are, based. Are, yeah, science maths. I'm math, science math English. Ish. Yeah, math. Ah, interesting. So can you yeah. can you can you elaborate on that? It didn't click for me. Yeah, I, I think uh, particularly our engineers and a lot of our technical scientists who yeah. are, they're just naturally good at maths, math, mathematics, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> they are they and and they they're very good at science and they're very good at the technical sciences so your physics your chem uh, all of those types of things whereas um, some people uh, they are science English and so they are the ones who are much better at the communication side of things they do have the science and technical aspect 
but you get too far into the mathematics and like my eyes glaze over. So <laughs> what, Which, what motivated you, what mood, what motivated you to go in and get your um, kind of post uh, graduate uh, studies in communications? I just liked it. And I was just naturally leaning towards that side of things. Um, when I was actually working in the lab, if we had studies that the whole team were doing, I was usually the one who ended up writing a report. It's just like, oh, no, uh, Kathy, you're good at that. And it's just, I just naturally started doing that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I liked doing it. And I was, I was actually better at it than a lot of the others. Um, and so it's just like, okay, I've got to bent this way. And then I realised, actually, I can think procedurally as well. So a lot of people can't think end to end. Um, they get stuck in the detail. Um, and the, the detail around what, where they are, and they have trouble understanding um, any inputs, outputs that they do within a process, how that impacts upstream and downstream. Whereas for me, it was just logical. You know, it was just kind of how I thought. And so that, again, it just led me into QMS type writing, doing procedure. You know, if, if the site had large, large pro, um, process changes or they were doing large changes within their procedures, and um, I was around available, then quite often I was asked for to come and can you be the tech writer on this? So I just started oh, leaning in that way. So, so that's really interesting. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, is just sort of a wide, widely given piece of advice uh, in terms of mentorship is find what you're good at, try to understand how you think and all that. Um, I guess, how, how did you come to the determination that, you know, you thought linearly, you, you were process driven and that type of thing. And the reason that I ask that is, you know, perhaps many people think they do, but they don't, or perhaps many people think they don't, but they do. And yeah. so in terms of, you know, aligning to your strengths, I guess, do you have any advice there? Yeah, I think the first um, light that went on for me while I was in the thick of it was uh, I would be talking in process or, or technical aspects with a subject matter expert and they just wouldn't get it and I'm thinking why don't you understand this this is basic <laughs> you know and then, so you, <laughs> then you go away you think am I not communicating well is and, and then I look at it and I actually had a conversation with someone else who was in a similar role uh, but more senior and uh, and they said they actually don't think linearly, Kathy. They think differently to you. They're, they're, they're sitting in that detail. And as soon as that, that the light went on, and it actually changed the way I communicated with that person. Huh. Uh, and it was just like, ah, okay, I get it. You're not thinking the same way that I do. Um, you're, you're stuck in, the, in that detail there. I actually just need to pull you out of that a little bit and step up a bit so you can see things from, from above. Look at it a little higher. <laughs> so, and I think that was, that was the first inkling. It's just like, oh, is this a superpower or something? <laughs> um, not really, but, um, you know, people do think differently. And uh, so to communicate with them, um, you need to find it because you, you need to find out how they receive communication as opposed to how you give it. Um, and that's, that's really the, the root of um, good communication. So <clears throat> sort of related uh, in, in the beginning uh, of your book, uh, uh, hopeless is not the right right word, but you know you talk about how you can teach most people how to write instructions, but not an SOP quality management system document. And then you yeah. know it's not until it's not until you make a, a a tiny little bit of headway in in your book that 
you know, it's not to say that, you know, you have to be naturally talented to be able to write. It's just different skill sets. But uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, and it does come back to that being able to see linearly. So most people, um, most people I can teach them to write a work instruction or a test method or even a batch instruction, you know, that, that detail and it's instructional, the how information, I call it. Um, and it's, it's really just setting them up. Here's the format you need to take. Um, here's how you make it active. Put the verb at the front and show them how to do that. Uh, and, then may, and then tell them, you know, you've got to be in order. And really, they are the, the big, big keys for instructional type writing. Um, and most people can handle that. Um, even people where English is their second language, um, they, can, they can kind of fit in that. They might then be able to progress once they kind of get the hang of that. They might then be able to progress to an SOP um, or, or people might, um, uh, they, they might be able to move to some aspects of, the, of writing an SOP, but people who are naturals um, tend to be able to think linearly. They tend to be able to understand, okay, if this input changes up here, how does that, how does that impact down the bottom of, of the process and understanding all the, the feedback loops and things that can happen within a process uh, and, and also changes to like, if you've got a material change, how, do they, how does that impact everything? Um, and so it's a little bit more demanding. And, and I guess a person needs to have a, a good understanding across the board of how the manufacturing works or whatever the process is around. Um, so it's not just nitty gritty detail. Um, and so I think it does come back to how you think and how you communicate. So, yeah. Got it. So, so essentially baby steps, you know, the, um, I think so. Yeah. You know, if, uh, un unless you're really, really naturally inclined and think super linearly off the bat, um, yep. you know, then, uh, start with a work instruction, see how you do. That's <laughs> uh, it. And then, and then, and then from there, move on. Um, so since we're already talking about your book, you know, I have, I have a boatload of questions about it. Uh, can you talk to me about what is a doc dag? <laughs> I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard. And then we'll get into gobbledygook. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's my Australian slang coming through. Um, yeah. So here in Australia, we call a dag so, someone who is it's a it's a colloquialism. It's a kind of a nice colloquialism. You say, "Oh, you're a dag," and it, it's it's just it's just like you you're a bit of a you know a dill, or you've done something a little bit silly, or um, you're a bit of a nerd. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I guess in your vernacular, I could have, could have said a, a doc nerd would be equivalent. Yeah. I see. Okay. <laughs> and so what, what, uh, what constitutes one? Is it just that you yeah. work in QA or? No, no, they're everywhere. If you go into any manufacturing site, you'll have doc tags throughout your, your um, company. Um, and they were, they're the ones who like documentation. They are the ones who get excited about um, templates and oh, if I if I put this information in a table, does it look better than if I put it in bullets? And how how how, how much indentation do I need to create as much white space? And yeah, they get very excited. Like if if I work with technical writers, uh, and you get them all in one group, you know, you, you put them together, they start then feeding off each other, which is really good for them, you know. And they start to write consistently, but they start to get this excitement, and they turn around and you know, completely quiet office someone suddenly turns around and goes how are you doing this how are you doing this bullet what if i do it this way and then there's this 15 minute discussion about around a bullet 
yeah. <laughs> it's just like originally it's just like you guys are not being very efficient and then i'm thinking no you're actually team building and you're, you're doing really well so i just let it run now so. yeah so so i i guess before before we move into uh gobbledygook um wh what motivated you to write the book yeah that's a good question yeah um <laughs> We got, think, we got a little ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I think um, I think the main reason is as a consultant, you go into a lot of companies and you see the quality of their QMS. And a lot of a lot of times, like I'm kind of used to it now, um, but a lot of times it just used to really throw me. It's just like, do you guys not know how to write a document? Like this is so complex. You really um, not setting your people up to to succeed here with this how are you training them using this oh we don't use the sop we've got additional training materials well have you thought that there might be a problem with the sop your sop should be the foundation for your training activity you can have additional materials but you know that sop should be really uh, you should be able to train from it and it was just like that was that was one of the the reasons it's just like a frustration with the industry um, it's just like, guys, this doesn't have to be there, this hard, you know. <laughs> and and then sitting in on audits. So as a consultant, sometimes you support your client in audit and you're in the back war room type situation. Um, and um, and it, it's kind of like um, the auditors are struggling with it as well. And it's just like, okay, so an auditor is having, having the same problems that I'm having. Um, and and a lot of and a lot of these places they just don't rec they think that's normal and they think that's what a QMS document should look like, and it's just like it doesn't have to be this complex. It can be much more simple, even with technically demanding topics and and detail. You can still write it in a simple way. So I think they were the main drivers. Um, the other thing too is it was just like I've got so much information in my head around this. I just needed to get it down. Um, and and trying to communicate it because I thought the industry and actually wider industries as well would benefit from it. So um, you, you found that you know your your clients in 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 some cases were almost trying to do their uh, execution type work despite a process instead of because of a process, and then um, you know as as part of audits. Um, you know, you found that it doesn't have to be that difficult. And, you know, one of the things that I heard from your answer there was that a lot of times people, uh, or, or even certain products think they're different because they're too complicated or, or whatever. Yes. And, and, and perhaps they're not, yes. uh, and, yeah. and you wanted to, um, put together a set of guidances, rules, things that could be followed that, you know, if you follow yep. this type of process, what you'll spit out is something that was was simpler that it that is simpler than it was before, right? So yeah, the, the Einstein quote, as simple as possible, but no further, right? Um, yeah. So 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 then then moving on, um, gobbledygook. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, I I wasn't sure if it was a real word until until you <laughs> talked about it in the uh, the Miriam Webster. Um, you define it in your book with citation. I Googled it. It is a real <laughs> word. Can you talk about it? Uh, dear. Um, 
Yes, I think gobbledygook has been used, it's actually been used in the plain language movement from way back. Uh, and I think one of your presidents actually quoted it. And they, so the plain language movement started way back in America, uh, in particularly in the legal and government sphere. And uh, one of your presidents put in place a, a prize, I think it was one of the earlier ones. Um, and, uh, and he put a prize in. And so it was around um, eliminating gobbledygook from legislation. Um, and I think it's kind of just been picked up by uh, the plain language movement and that's what they use. And so I wanted to use that word particularly to link within our industry, the whole plain language um, requirements because it's in your law now. It's, it's actually written into, into US law. And the FDA, if you look on the FDA's website, they actually have a page um, that defines, you know, that they use plain language. And um, if you're having trouble with the way they're writing, they, they actually want you to contact them. So um, so that, that's kind of where that came from. I wanted to make that link. And, um, and then having seen, okay, it's in your law, the FDA have to follow it. Then I, I kind of thought, well, maybe people don't realise within our industry that that's there. They may not even be aware of it because it's not exactly GMP. So, um, but yeah, I actually find when you look at the regulations, particularly the PICS reg regulations, um, not so much the CFRs, um, they're they're getting much better. They are becoming much much clearer in their way, way they're defining their clauses uh, compared to you look at twenty years ago some of the, the regulations, and it's just like it was quite legalese. Um, but I, I think they are moving um, and I think they are, um, they're getting clearer in their intent. So, yeah. One of the, one of the quotes that I found really interesting in, in your book uh, within, within that section, you had a whole section around the history of plain language. Um, you know, where did it come from? You talked about the U S kind of legislation and then, and then how it ends up uh, within FDA, I think in, in 2010 or something like that. Yep. Um, but one of the quotes I thought was really interesting was plain language is a civil right. And I read that and thought, you know, especially from a legislation lawmaking process, yes. uh, you know, as a, as a, as a civilian, somebody with civil rights, you want to, uh, you know, understand what your, what your, uh, roles and responsibilities are essentially as, as a civilian. So, uh, I really connected with that. Can you talk about what is plain language? Because it, you know, uh, at, before reading your book, I didn't know it was a, a well-defined um, thing and that there are different, uh, well, albeit narrow, maybe there are differing, uh, you know, sort of opinions, guidelines yeah. and things like that. Yeah, there are, there's some slightly different definitions out there. Um, I guess from my perspective, um, looking at, at the therapeutic industry, um, I would define plain language as, as keeping things as simple and plain as possible for your audience, um, even if it's technical in nature. And so it's not getting stuck in technobabble or, you know, you know, sentences that are five lines long, those types of things. Um, I think the main thing here is, um, is to understand who the audience is. And so you're writing for the audience in a plain language. So you're not getting caught up with jargon, um, the techno babble, like I said, um, and you're, you're being clear in the way you're writing. So you're using active language um, and um, just it's, it's just about being clear and plain. 
in, in, in the beginning of your book, you also talk about the, uh, the problem that plain language solves. Uh, you yep. kind of go into, you did an analysis of FDA 483 observations across multiple industries, medical devices, uh, pharma, I believe uh, veterinary products as well. And, and others, yep. it wasn't, it wasn't yep. just med device and pharma. And, um, you know, you came to the conclusion that, you know, in, in all, in most, if not all cases, um, you know, the top three were documentation related. I think the list that I have is, uh, poor documentation, lack of procedures or not following procedures. Can you talk a little bit about that analysis that you did? Yeah. So that was, um, um, a bit of time spent on the FDA website. So you can download all that data <laughs> into, into Excel spreadsheets and then just, just uh, manipulating that uh, and to, to have a look at how many of these 483s have got documentation as a, as a root cause. So it may not, it, that's, that's why calling them out, there were slightly different definitions because uh, different areas of the FDA actually use def different descriptions for, I think, what was the same thing. Um, can you can you so, elaborate on that? Um, I think just just different offices or different uh, um, areas. Um, so if they are primarily pharma versus veterinary uh, versus um, medical device, the terminology was slightly different in how they're describing the the deficiency. Um, and so I was kind of trying to look at that. Okay, what's trying trying to find a baseline for for what they were describing? So not. Not only did I actually go into the individual 483s, but I actually went into the clauses um, and had a look at, okay, what's the root cause here? I'm just trying to tell from the definition. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's why the, the numbers are reasonably large because within one um, deficiency that you might, you actually might have, you know, how they, they list, you might have three or four um, different either root causes or, or things that are wrong. And so that might actually, one, one um, deficiency might generate three or four actual um, numbers that I've actually done on that, that analysis. So that, that was interesting. Um, it's probably time that I redid it, actually. It's, it's uh, a few years old now. Um, but at that time, it was across most industries, it was usually something like um, in the top three or top five. And I think that's, it's not changed. Um, it's, it's a common problem. Um, in all audit citations is that there's a documentation disconnect somewhere. Um, where do you think, because the, the one that I thought that was, was really interesting, obviously poor documentation or lack of procedures, you know, those, those are pretty straightforward, um, yeah. you know, in terms of compliance gaps. But the one that, I, the one that I, I found really interesting that you highlighted was failure to follow, i.e. Yeah. a procedure is in place. It may or may not be compliant. That's not what the citation is for. The citation yeah. is for you had a procedure in place, but it wasn't followed. Uh, yeah. I guess from 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 your estimation, where do you think those types of um, situations uh, stem from? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a general fail, uh, I think, in terms of the QMS maturity. So um, the if the document is not being followed, so either there's something wrong with the document and they haven't updated it and they're just doing their own thing. So they're just, just running on, this is how we've always done it. And so there's a disconnect between um, how the process is actually run and how the process is described in the document. So there's a documentation file uh, among other things. Um, there could be a training file. Um, and so 
whether the process is right in the document or how it's been done in, in uh, real life, um, I actually don't see that as, as too, much too much of a difference. It, it's a documentation file. And so that SOP needs to be fixed to either match or they need to use that SOP to drive um, the process change. And so I guess that's why that was included. So, uh, yeah, or it could just be, you know, people aren't trained well. Um, it could be that um, documentation is not valued. So some places, um, they, uh, your QMS is seen as a tick in the box, particularly more like sort of the uh, biotech, med tech, as opposed to the pharma now. Uh, but it's still, you know, perceived as, oh, this is my compliance checkbox. We get audited every two years and this just needs to be right for then and then we can forget about it, put it in a drawer. And it's, it's kind of like, no, this is central to everything that you do and it should be, it should be you know, valued and used that way. It should be an asset and it's not intended to be a liability. So, yeah. Yeah, one thing I, uh, I thought was really interesting when I was doing my ISO 13485 uh, lead auditor certification is that yep. the, the ISO standard is written as it's to be implemented, you know, barring definitions and things like that. You implement yep. a doc, documentation and doc uh, control and management system before you do anything else. Yep. Right. And so it's just interesting that, you know, from a, just from a managing a quality system, the first thing that you do is set that up. Any thoughts on yep. that? Oh, too many. <laughs> um, I actually see that a lot, but I think um, coming from the R and D space. So a lot of these um, medical device guys, they are technical in nature and they've developed a, an amazing product. And then they're just trying to bolt on, this is how we do compliance. And it's just like, no, not really. <laughs> Can we just take a few steps back into your design and development and just tweak some things as we go through? Um, and so then when, when you, they spit you out the other end and they get their 13485 certification, um, then they do have a, a, a QMS that then reflects what we would expect to see. So, yes, I, I do see that a lot. <laughs> um, I guess, do you, do you have any stories that you can share about that? working with uh, a company that had a novel technology, but their quality system wasn't as uh, mature as maybe their. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it's, it's, it's a generalization, um, I guess, could be because so many of these, these, they're usually engineers who are technically brilliant. They are just really, you, you look at the product and you just, you just go, wow. Um, and you're all hats off for the, for the creativity and, and, uh, scientific and engineering work um, that they do and you look at their design and development um, it's usually not documented well but you look at look at what they're doing and it's just mind-blowing and then you kind of think okay I need to peel them back a little bit and they need to one document it properly so that any, anyone else can communicate it to an auditor so it comes back to that communication piece again these guys are quite often they're science mathematics um, and they're lacking in that science English thinking uh, or mindset, if you like. And they just need someone to translate for them sometimes. Uh, and other times it's really just they don't understand what compliance is about. And they think, you know, what they can do in automotive or what they can do in, in another sphere, mechanical or, or whatever, that they can just bolt it on to pharma. And it is, it's that education journey. And that I do that a lot with um, with companies who want to commercialize and they haven't done that before. Hmm. Uh, do you find that it's a one and done thing that once, once you, um, you know, provide that cultural shift, uh, 
you know, the, the scars perhaps from the first uh, way through uh, help, help things moving forward? Um, I usually find, like if they're successful and, and they then start to grow, I usually find that, that they continue to call on me, um, particularly around audits. Um, it's, it's still an uphill battle. Uh, because it's not automatic like they haven't lived a farmer journey or something like that it's really it's it's an uphill battle um, and so they they still you know they're, they're flicking to um, engineering and business and they quite often forget the the compliance um, element if they've got a strong QA manager that they've put in um, they usually they're, they're usually fine um, they can usually cobble their way through their first few years and then they're, they're up and away um, if they don't have a strong QA manager or, or worse, they don't see the value of a QA manager and they want, they think it's admin. That's, that's the other thing. Um, and it's just like, yeah, you might have problems. <laughs> so it's just getting them above. No, QA is not admin. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, your secretary can't do it for you. Sorry. <laughs> you need, need someone who is senior and needs to be able to tell you what you need to do and you need to need to listen to them. So that's, it's that, that mentality and that can take a while got it so. um so we, we 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 discussed a little bit earlier about um you know how people think differently in that uh your book touches on the neuroscience of reading i thought this was really cool uh you talk about how eye tracking is used to quantify reading attention comprehension how yep. structuring sentences can help uh you know the 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 action of the person reading it um so on and so forth. There were a couple of things I was hoping that you could talk about. Can you talk about inference building and schemas? Or did I yeah. say that right? Schemas or schemas? Uh, I would say schemas, but schemas. You know, it, it just yeah. might be might be American. You know, <laughs> American versus yeah. Australian. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so when you read, uh, it, it's actually how we read is actually just one of those amazing things that our brain does. We're taking, if you think, we're taking a, a linear sentence, which is two-dimensional on a page, and we're communicating with that to someone's brain who can then essentially see something in, in 3D or they, they have a memory associated with it. And so when we read, if you, if you understand your audience um, and you're adapting the way that you're writing, if what you write is what they, they then see in their head when they read, then you've got good communication. If they're stumbling over that somewhere, then uh, there's a disconnect and it's actually the writer that needs to change usually uh, to, to meet the need of that particular person in that audience. So that's, that's the, the ground level. So when you read, uh, you, your brain's doing several things um, in nanoseconds. Uh, so first of all, um, it's recognising words. Uh, it's then determining what is the meaning of those words. So if you think about different spellings of the same word that's pronounced the same way, so peace and peace, um, what's another one? Those types of words. Um, sheep is another one. Is that is that uh, singular or plural? And so that type of thing your brain's doing really, really fast and it's recognize, recognizing words in a sentence. So as you read, it's picking up, you're, like you're going minimally, and it's trying to get the whole picture of the whole sentence as you read linearly. linearly. <laughs> um, so it's recognizing those words. Once it's recognized those words, it's then determining um, what is the picture that I see? What is the, the inference that's there? And so uh, that is what's the meaning? What is the meaning of this collection of words that are together? 
And so then you're, you're based on, on your knowledge of what words mean and fitting them together to see if you're actually getting a, a, a word picture essentially in your mind. Then the schema is it's essentially, um, it's like our filter. And so if you consider um, the way we see the world, our, uh, our mindsets uh, and our, um, our blind spots, all of those types of things can become our schema. And so then um, what you're actually reading is then filtered through that. Um, so how do you see the world? Uh, is then you then translate what you're, you're reading and then you get your meaning out of that. And so there's actually, there's, there's multiple stages that, that's happening there. Now, I'm not a neuroscience, so that's <laughs> that. That's probably the the uh, getting to the limit of my knowledge. Is that's what's in the book. So I actually so, had to do a whole pile of research. <laughs> yeah, no. So I I think I found it really interesting because I think what I, what I gained from from that section personally is that you know you're working within somebody's current understanding, and whether mm -hmm. it's whether it's an inference or a a, a, a schema. Uh, you need to build upon that. Now we all come from yeah. different backgrounds, uh, yeah. different exposures. I guess what advice do you have in terms of, you know, inference building? If if you know an inference may make sense to one person or another. Yeah. Well, it, it comes back to that audience, and so one of the things I do talk about early on when you're trying to write um, is to understand your audience, and so that factors in one how they've learned to read and write. <clears throat> um, and how well they've learned to read and write, so their education level, and also how they see the world. Where have they come from? You know, um, what type of uh, demographic are they? Male, female, age, all of those things um, will have an impact on, on your inference and your, your schema building. And so I suppose I don't tend to get hung up too much on the neuroscience. To me, that was explaining why audience and analysis is really powerful. Um, and so when you, if you take it into your business, so let's, let's talk about a manufacturing plant. If you're writing in a lab compared to writing on the shop floor, do you change the way that you write? If you're writing for a manager or senior top leaders, do you change the way that you write compared to um, someone who's a team leader in the ops area or supply chain? And it's just like, who am I writing for? And I still do this to this day. It's just like, who is my primary audience? And it's, it's also important in our industry to think that your auditor is also part of your audience. And so you, you've, got, you've got people on shop floor, you've got people in labs, you've got people in warehouses, you've got um, lower management, middle management, top management. Um, you might have exec who are different again. Um, and so you need to think about where is this being pitched? And I get this comes back to, I can teach someone to write an instruction, which is very much usually one, one team, one, one um, area of the business compared to an SOP, which might be touching lots of areas. Yeah, and in the same <clears throat> section related to neuroscience, you also talk about sentence parsing. I, um, you know, from second grade on to fifth grade, I, I was in the Middle East. And so, you know, that for that part of my life, I was learning Arabic and we did a lot of sentence parsing. It's called Arab in Arabic. And it's like yep. a fundamental skill that you yep. use to learn Arabic just because of the way um, verbs are conjugated. It's, it's really critical. Um, I don't remember, you know, learning it in elementary school, uh, but it could, it could just be my poor memory. Um, also within that sentence, you talk about the, the quote, 
the or actually I'm quoting you it's not a it's not a quote that goes the reader must have the same tree as the writer intended so uh, I'm going to go a little bit more and say that the idea of sentence parsing to me is that you're being intentional with how you're setting up your sentence uh, you know, to ensure maximum, say, comprehension, but also that yes. the sentence is a sound sentence. Um, yes. And so the, the, the you are reading the sentence, you are writing the sentence as an author uh, in a way that you intend it to be understood. Uh, yes. If you if you map it out into a tree, uh, the reader's tree should be the same. They should have understood yes. it the same way you intended to write it. Can you just talk a little bit about, I know I spent a little bit of time <laughs> asking a question, right? And so maybe I'm a good student or you're a good writer. So I got it, but you know, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit. <laughs> well, first of all, I would say you're, you're not alone. I don't recall learning this in school at all. Um, and so when I'm now reading about neuroscience and they're talking about document trees I'm thinking what on earth are they talking about so I actually learned as I was writing this um, and and so um, I I don't recall being taught this in English at all so from uh, a bit of a bit of jealousy in terms of you've been taught at least in some language yeah. <laughs> um, what this is about um, I do remember being drilled around um, uh, around verbs conjugation prepositions all, all the, the typical grammar stuff. Um, I actually, in hindsight, I actually think they need to teach that better um, because it was, at the time, it, it didn't seem remotely relevant to, you know, the rest of my life. And here I am now writing about it. Um, anyway, having said that, um, I don't get hung up too much on grammar, but I do, um, I do tend to look at sentences and think, okay, how does the audience see this? Do they understand this sentence structure? And we can get very hung up. Um, particularly people who have gone through, they've had, they've got degrees, they've been taught by a university on, on how to write, but really it's not in plain language at all. Um, and uh, just, just looking at, okay, how do you simplify this sentence so that the, the action word is then connected with the doing word, so the verbs and the nouns, um, and all the other detail there, does it belong in the sentence or is it the next sentence or just framing that sentence? Um, and so those document trees where you can break them down uh, in, in terms of where the verb is um, and depending on how you've written the sentence, that tree will actually grow in a different, different direction sometimes <laughs> if you put the verb in a poor position. And so that can communicate a completely different um, meaning to someone else who reads it. And we've all seen the really good examples of, of headlines in the, in the newspaper where they write something that actually is meaning something completely different uh, simply because it's a poor heading. Um, and so I think our writing can be exactly the same. Those, those uh, two skills that we talked about, the uh, inference building schemas, uh, the uh, sentence parsing, uh, I think in your own estimation, are those better as sort of just mental understanding tools or do you think that's something that, uh, or, or I'll ask you this way, is that something that you do when you're actually writing where you will put out a sentence, map it out and say, does this make sense? Or, or is that something as, a, as, a, as an author to understand that, hey, folks will understand things differently. It's important to contextualize things against uh, uh, 
subjects that perhaps people already understand in, in yes. uh, understanding your audience. So I'm just, I'm wondering from a, from a practicality perspective, do you think that's yeah. something that people should actually use uh, or it's something that is better as just sort of a operating principle? I think, I think it's good to understand so that you then understand the principles and the, the essential nature of doing an audience analysis or at least considering who your audience is. Um, I, so I think it's, from my point of view, it, I, don't, I don't write and think, oh, you know, what, what schema are they, going to, um, are they going to think around this? And I, and I actually don't do the whole passing analysis that, that you can do unless I, I'm really struggling with one particular sentence, which I just can't get right, then I'll break it down. Um, and then that, that can usually help. However, um, I think, particularly in our industry, I think many, anyone who is writing, actually writing anything in our industry, they need to be aware of their audience. They need to understand who am I writing this technical report for? And so, um, you know, and a lot of people, they write for everyone. And it's just like, <laughs> you're, not, you're not writing for everyone. You're actually writing for a very select group of people. Um, or they're, they're writing and they include every piece of information. It's just like, well, you know, um, these people already understand what photosynthesis is. You don't need to describe it in absolute detail in your introduction. You can just assume that they've done it. So it's, it's, it's also understanding the level of detail they include. So. Yeah. So a question for you, there's this, uh, there's different philosophies, right. As far as documentation goes, but one of the things that I've heard time and again, is that a document should be able to stand on their own. Oh, I, I should say mm -hmm. a document should be able to stand on its own. And so what ends up happening is you have, um, you know, if it were to stand on its own truly, then you have repeated information, I guess. What's your, what are your thoughts on that in terms of audience yeah. Is it I lean and mean or is it, you know, a document should truly stand on its own? Yeah, I, I'm going to fall halfway, you know, a bit, bit halfway, I think, <laughs> leaning towards lean and mean. Um, I think if your audience, like take a typical pharmaceutical manufacturing plant, they, they understand the layout of, of, the, of the plant. They understand the room numbers they, and those sorts of things. You don't have to reiterate that. That would be complete standalone. Um, Having said that, uh, one of my pet hates is where you've got a form which is badly designed and then the, uh, someone will take half of an SOP to describe how to fill out the form. And it's just like, that's crazy. You know, it's just like that form should be well designed and able to stand on its own and someone doesn't have to go and reference multiple documents to be able to fill out a flipping form. <laughs> so, so from that perspective, I am full on um, lean and mean. You know, from, from that, that angle. But if you're filling out a report, which is going to go then in a dossier, um, then at some stage in that dossier, you're going to have a product description, etc. And so in every report that comes through there, you don't have to describe the product. So I, I think you need to look at where is this document going as a whole. If it's an SOP within your QMS, there are other documents within the QMS that can describe some things. And so it's just a reference. So um, it, it's understanding where information should be. As soon as you introduce duplication into, into your QMS, you've potentially got a problem um, because one document can be updated and the other does not. And so then you've got contradiction. And so then you've got an audit, an, an audit 
order to just going, well, why does this document say to do this? And why did this one say to do something different? And you get a citation. So one of my main mantras is get rid of contradiction, get rid of duplication, because duplication will lead to contradiction. So again, it depends on the doc type. What are you writing as to how much information you include? Sorry, I was just writing that down. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, that, it, it, there are things that you sort of know, but sometimes you hear someone say it uh, in a certain yep. way. Uh, get get rid of uh, contradiction. Get rid of duplication because duplication will eventually become contradiction. It's like uh, yep. one of one of my favorite quotes is something like, uh, "A problem unaddressed is a problem compounded." You know, type yes. of thing. Yeah. So, okay, yes. mo mo moving on uh, on on the subject of. Uh, uh, the, the neuroscience, you also talk about active sentences versus zombie sentences. Can you talk yeah. about what is active voice and passive voice and, and should you use active voice 100% of the time or as close to 100% of the time? Yeah, so again, it comes back to the document type you're writing, writing for. Um, first of all, so active versus passive is really all about the type of verb you're using. Uh, so if you're using a passive verb, that's that's what I'm calling a zombie sentence. So um, and they're called a zombie sentence because they're usually <laughs> staggering along for five lines and uh, you can't figure out the meaning. And it's just like, ah, oh, you know what's going on, um, whereas active is much more succinct. You're, you're, um, there might be multiple sentences um, that clearly and plainly tell you what to do. Um, active sentence uh, verbs in a instruction. Uh, is usually um, often the first word. So if you think about a test method um, and you've got steps one, two, three, four, five, and you're preparing a solution. And so those steps, they might start with um, prepare, weigh, um, something else that you're doing, pipette, pipette out, um, collect. Yeah. Yes, all of those things. So those verbs. And so that sets you up in your instruction. It's just like, you know, prepare. The solution with da 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 da, um, or way way out da 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 da, and so that's then it's active, and then as people are reading, that's becoming predictable, and so they can see within their steps. So here's my active word, I'm weighing. Okay, so you automatically your scheme is going, I'm weighing. Okay, um, and you're okay. So now I'm preparing a solution. So I'm preparing. Oh, I'll need glassware for that. So you're starting to think about how am I preparing the solution. So it's automatically setting your, your reader's brain up <laughs> to understand what they need to do. A um, little bit different when you're writing paragraph text, um, but it, again, it's understanding. Now, I, I do do this a lot. I'll look at where's the verb in a sentence. So if I'm reviewing someone's document or if I'm reviewing my own, it's where is the verb? And what we can do, um, particularly uh, in... We, we, we can actually make what we call um, their, their nominalizations. And so we turn a poor old noun and make it a verb. Um, and so you can, and it's usually by adding on the end, um, uh, A-T-I-O-N. So something, um, can't think of a word at the top of my head. <laughs> um, and you Nominalization. Normalization, there you go. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. Um, and so um, you, you're actually turning a poor old noun and making it perform as a verb. And it can get very confusing because you've got to then add layers of words around that to make it become a verb. Whereas um, 
you could just say, you know, that the word up front uh, as a verb and it's much simpler. I'm struggling to think of an example. Well, ver um, ver ver you know, perform the verification yes. as opposed to verify. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is that, did I get that right? And, yeah, and, that, that's, that's, and, that, and that's called nominalization? Uh, if it's using a word, a, a, a noun, uh, and making it into a verb, yes. Or it might just be a passive um, use of the verb. So there's there's, there's two different things there. Um, but we, particularly in technical areas, we do get very, very wordy. Um, and it's just because we're using the wrong verb form. So we want to use a strong verb, um, keep it very active. And so it's, it's usually um, active. Um, so way or weighing, so it's the ing form of it, is the very active word, and it's a strong word, and so strong verb, and so people then understand. Okay, it sets me up. I know exactly what I'm doing here. Whereas if it's if the verb's kind of hidden, if you can't look at a sentence and go, "There's the verb," then it's probably hidden, and it probably means you need to to rework the sentence. Yeah, and I, I really liked I really liked how you started describing it. Uh, it, it reminded me of like uh, I made scones my, with my daughter uh, mm -hmm. last last week, and you know what you were saying. Okay, what are we gonna do? Okay, we're doing this now. Uh, I think that's a that's a really interesting way of um, thinking about an uh, you know writing a something that's you know an actionable um, sentence. Uh, you know, you have a, again, I told you I'm, I'm really into quotes. I have a whole wall of them and I have like this, I, I painted a wall black and I uh, write them right uh, with a white paint marker whenever I find a quote. And uh, this one in your book uh, is going on the wall. I underlined it in the <laughs> book. Uh, the quote is by Mark Twain. It goes, the difference between almost the right word and the right word is really a large matter. Tis the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm wondering, I think a big, a big part of becoming a good, uh, this is my, my opinion, uh, opinion is mine and my own, but, um, my, you know, my, my, my opinion is that a, a big part of technical writing is understanding is a sentence necessary or is it not? Um, yeah. do, I mean, do, do you find a part of your, your, the, the trainings that you do is just having people be comfortable with removing things that are not truly necessary? Yeah, yeah, and I think you can you can use a real estate um, analogy here. So if you think about when you're trying to sell your home, um, you might declutter all of your personal stuff. You know, so you take you might take a lot of the the the, the personal knickknacks down and some of the photos down, and you might put a new fresh painted painted uh, a wall, um, and uh, you, you get rid of unnecessary furniture and you put things away, or you might put them in the shed for storage. So that you know, you can see the size of the, the of the room, and you can see the nice, you know, the details and the lovely windows and those sorts of things. Well, your the way you write a document is no different, and so you need to declutter your documents, and because uh, really they're on sale, they're they're uh, they're, they're on um, on show for people to read and hopefully read them well and so if you I, I always use this analogy when I'm doing training and it's just like and people tend to get it and it's just like don't clutter your documents up with crap <laughs> so it's just that's my Australianism um and it's, it's just like we, we say don't... crap here in the U.S. too by the way yeah cool <laughs> 
Um, whether we have the right schema around it, I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so don't don't clutter your documents up. And that can be with words. It could also be in the way you've structured the document. So if there's no white space, it's just end to end type paragraphing. Um, there's multiple ways that, that you can declutter a document. But yeah, what is what are you trying to say? And it's it's um, that's another thing that I, I often ask people is when you read this long winded paragraph, it's just like if you were to, to talk to me about what you've just written, what would you say? And then you go, oh, I just go blah blah blah. And I said, well, why don't you just write that? So really, um, they get so hung up in trying to be technical or trying to look good or impressive that sort of thing. And really, plain language is not about that. It's about being plain and communicating. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I, I, one thing that I've I found you know personally through my own development is you know you you try to it, you almost want to apply a Pareto principle rule when you when you're going through a document for it to stand on its own. Um, you need to maybe have some back pocket uh, information ready to address a question or concern that may come up. Yep. Um, but you you know I've seen I've seen that also you know gone gone haywire right where yes you know you try to answer a hundred questions when it, it, it loses the the one that you were trying to answer to begin with but can you yeah. can you talk about the difference i thought this was really interesting can you talk about the difference between controlled documents and managed documents yeah so i think um um i kind of come across this particularly around qa guys tend to have a little bit of a struggle with this so they they tend to think about and like, you know, do I need to have the level of control around some records? Um, R&D guys would, which might have struggle with this as well. So I think from my point of view, the controlled document is how we control our QMS procedures. And so you don't make any changes to them without a change control request that's approved before you start making the changes. Um, you don't, or you don't get access to the Word version, so you can't make changes. And so it's very regimented and locked down and controlled. Whereas I think managed um, might then apply to records that you know an ops department keeps um, from within their department. It's not it's not um, controlled and locked down by QA. They manage their own. It's still managed well and it's neat and tidy and, and presentable. Um, you know, there's not any um, inappropriate changes being made to the document without approvals. Um, but it doesn't have that lockdown, you know, vault type situation that QA documents can, can tend to have. I think if, depending on how a business is set up with their validation documents, um, they can, like some operational areas or manufacturing areas, they actually may manage their own validation documents themselves. They might be signed off for QA, but they're managed by them. To me, that's managed. That's not necessarily lockdown controlled. Um, and so just looking at the difference, because like validation changes, you can't manage that to the same rigor that you would do with a change control, particularly like if it's, if it's new, if you're putting in a new line, those types of things. And it's just, it comes back to, you know, how much, um, how much control do you need at what particular stage of what you're doing? So, yeah. Under understood. Uh, I guess mo moving on a little bit, you uh, you you talk a lot about um, uh, understanding who your uh, audience is. You draw the parallel in your book of a theater. Uh, you know who who are you playing to? What do they hear and see? 
Um, can you just talk a little bit about what assessments one can do to understand who the audience is? I also like that you mentioned the the auditor is always lurking in the audience. <laughs> um, but can you talk? It's about like Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think um, like you would go to the theatre like you would, or, or to the, the picture theatre to watch a movie, um, you, you're there, you're, all your senses are active and you are receiving communication about a story or, or a plot or whatever. And so you're hearing, you're seeing, uh, depending on where you are, you might even be smelling something that's coming off the front of the stage or, you know, um, that's that sort of thing. And so when you're trying to communicate your story, because even if you're writing technical information, it's still a story. It's got a start and an end and there is a plot somewhere in there. It might be technical, but it's still a story. And if you um, if you think about that, like we actually communicate better with stories. So we understand that the story concept is much better. Um, and so if you can adopt that, even in a, in a technical aspect to a certain degree, then you're usually more successful in your communication. So to communicate the story, you need to understand your audience. Um, and I guess um, if, if uh, your auditor is the phantom of the opera in the back of the theatre, <laughs> lurking there, popping out at, at strange times, um, you need to be ready for, for him. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think your, your um, main show in your QMS, um, if you consider it like, a, like a, a main plot, this is how you do things. This is your business. This is what, who and what you are and what you produce. Um, and so that is your story. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that needs to be communicated, one, to your people within your, your business, anyone, any third party who you interact with and, and major stakeholders, and that does include your auditor. And, and so from, from, from that vein, you also talk about process mapping. You know, uh, why is that important for documentation? Yeah, I think process mapping is a simple tool that can help you get so many things right in, in a QMS document. Um, so I teach process mapping and it's 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 just simple stuff you know you're using you're using a, a sticky notes and you're sticking them up on a board or a wall or a window um, and you're teaching people um, to actually map what the process is but they might understand that into they might be doing a risk assessment and understand it there they might be doing process val or or something else and they oh yeah we know how to do process mapping what are you teaching us this for and it's really about, well, how are you then using that process map to drive the structure of the document that you're writing? And this comes back particularly to your SOP. What is your process? What are the inputs, outputs? Who's involved? Um, and how that then you can then transfer directly across into your SOP. So if you, um, if you group uh, into stages the parts of the process that, um, that you've got, those then become the headings within your SOP. And that automatically means that your SOP follows your process. So you can't have, people can't wander off and you know, write something that's, that's not part of the process. It automatically makes it align. So it's very powerful. And it also means that um, as soon as you start using a visual tool like process mapping, people can see improvements. They go, oh, we've got a dog leg there or there's a hotspot there. There's something going on there. And so they can have a discussion around it 
and it's 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 really powerful for driving a process improvement. So quite often when I do um, QMS writing um, for a business that's already got a QMS, and I come in and say I'm going to have a SME meeting, and they go, Oh, we don't need to all gather. We know what the process is. <laughs> and you get them in, you get them in a meeting, and they've all got a slightly different view. They all have their slightly different schemas. Okay. And so their, their view of the process is all just a little bit different because they're in different areas of the business. And so you ask, well, where does this process start? And quite often you go, you, you find that three of them have a different opinion of where the process starts. Okay. Well, you have a conversation around that. And then what you find is um, if, if that happens is that there is a, a problem with the interface with all the other processes going on. And there's probably a hotspot there, which you can improve on. So automatically they've, they've gone, oh, well, you think differently to me. And so you get people in the same room talking to each other and then it's just like, oh, wow. <laughs> so I think from that perspective, it's very powerful. And it's your story. It's that where's the start, where's the finish, what's in between, that's your story. And if you process map it and then make sure it goes in the SOP, the way you write it, um, you're automatically capturing the story. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. You reminded me of... Uh... <clears throat> when I was first starting out, uh, I think I was in an R&D or manufacturing, but I, I was max two years out of school and I was walking, I was walking the line and one, one guy who's a, who's a worker on the line just cracks a joke like, uh oh, the suits are here. And I'm just looking around like, oh, who, who, who are the suits, you know, because I guess I'm technically uh, one of the corporate people. And, you know, I, I got really familiar with the, um, line operators, uh, you know, walking the Gemba is what people say as far as, uh, you know, yep. Lean Six Sigma, right? But uh, yep. it's, it's, it's unbelievable, um, you know, the, the amount of knowledge that's, that's there on the line. And when you, yep. it, when you include those people and, and try to understand uh, how they think, uh, in many cases, you'll realize how flawed your own thinking or how, you know, maybe less measured you think you are. And I think yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty humbling. Um, yeah. You know, from, 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 the, from the process mapping perspective, uh, you know, one thing that uh, I really liked in your book was, you know, you talk about the decision of when do you need to make a separate sub procedure or when do you need to make a specific work instruction or form? Yeah. Uh, the, the line that jumped out was too short is just annoy as annoying as too long. And so, you know, how do you find that balance? And from a process mapping yeah. perspective, you know, where, where do you decide? Yeah, this is this is a, a common question, and it's really um, it's it's really showing that people are starting to think about what type of information types we have. And so, if you think information, um, they can be dis describing the what, the the who, the where, the when, and the how. The how information is typically what you would put in an instruction. The rest is in an SOP, in that top level document, and then an instruction then hangs off it. So if you are in a company where the QMS insists on the work instruction must have a parent SOP, then that, that works all fine. If you're not, and you've got WAIF um, working, work instructions that are orphaned somewhere, and they don't have a, a parent, um, then sometimes that, you know, you start to then get a mix of, well, what is an SOP versus what it is, is an instruction. And really the definition is an instruction is that how information, it's that detail. And it's usually um, describing one activity that's used by either one person or one team at a time. Whereas an SOP has that broader audience 
um, it can be used by multiple teams and it's used over time. And so if you think about um, an end-to-end -end process of raw material in, finished product out as, a, as one process, um, then that's happening over multiple times, multiple teams and addressing different audiences. So to come back to how do I understand how to split? Um, if you have a lot of how information, um, that's enough. My general rule is if, it's, if it will um, be longer than, than probably two pages, one, one and a half to two pages, one maybe, um, of just, just instructions and so not front and back matter, um, then potentially you could break out. It also depends on where it sits within the process. So if it's, if it's a big chunky SOP and you actually need to declutter the SOP, then it's great to, to put something in a work instruction. If it's a really linear, simple SOP and you've got, you know, a couple of paragraphs of, or a, um, a step action table of how information, put it in the SOP and don't make someone break out into a different document. Also, who's using it? So if you've got a big team uh, that needs to be trained on just this bit on the how versus the whole SOP that it needs to be trained on, break it out. So it, it's, it's looking at it as a whole. Um, yeah, but I think some people get, they get hung up with the type of information they've got and they go, oh, I need a work instruction here and a work instruction there. And it's just like, not really. You could put it in the SOP. So swings and roundabouts and it comes with experience. Yeah, there's, it sounds like there's, a, there's an art that you, you, you learn is. over time. And um, yeah. I, I do appreciate <clears throat> that part of the answer is, you know, understand the framework that you're working with. It doesn't, it, it, it's, I, and I saw this a few, a few times in, in your book where you just talked about just be consistent. And so if, yeah. if, if you have a rule that's a one and a half or two page, or, you know, if you guys use appendices to outline, then you can just chunk it out into the end if, if that, you know. Yeah. Uh, just, just be consistent. Um, can, I, I, I liked your uh, section about document design. Uh, you know, you talked about, you know, the design of a document is important. You know, the white space is just as important as the yeah. space that you take up, you know, the fonts that are used and, you know, how many bullets are, how many bullets are too many. And, you know, do you end <laughs> yeah. with a semicolon and, and so on and so forth. But um, can you just talk about document design at a high level? And then I want to talk yeah. about font because I thought your section on font was really cool. Yeah. So document design is probably half the battle that you have in terms of having a plain language document. Um, and so it's, it's actually really important. So a lot of places, they don't even have um, templates that are mandated that people have to, you know, have to use to create their documents. So that would be the first step I would recommend people do um, is that they have, um, they have templates for the SOPs, work instructions, forms, whatever, um, and that embeds all of your compliance requirements, so your header, footer, IDs, and also your white space and what you're putting in front matter versus what goes in back matter. Um, and, uh, and looking at, um, there's nothing worse than having pages and pages of paragraph text. It's just hard to read. It's slow, and people don't. They look at it and they go, oh, I'll figure it out. Or they'll go, I'll ask someone. Um, and it's just, it just makes the information inaccessible. And so document designs um, that have got a lot of tables in terms of um, information that's chunked. So you might have a, pa a paragraph, a, a page of paragraphs, 
each one of those paragraphs might only be a few um, page, few, few lines long, um, but they're each talking about slightly different um, elements. You could put that in a table and a row for each paragraph and give it a heading. And that heading is essentially like a summary. And your eye will run down there and go, oh, I need that bit. And you get straight to it. And so it's, it helps people navigate the document much easier. And it's much, it's, it's much better for them to remember. And so if you think about you're reading a big, heavy um, page of text, it's really hard to remember what you read at the beginning of the, of the page, unless it's really well written. And really, most of us are not eloquent writers. Uh, we're really just trying to be technically accurate. Um, and so we need to start to use some of these document design elements to help our writing. The things like if you go back to the schemas uh, and, and our memory. So our short-term memory is actually quite important when we read because you're remembering the, the sentences before to make sense of what you're reading at, you know, at that particular point. Um, so short-term memory, um, there's been a lot of studies on that. And it used to be the seven plus or minus two type rule. And so your brain can only cope with that much buffering in your, in your um, uh, short-term memory. It's actually been revised, I think, what recently. Is seven, and it's seven, seven plus or minus two? Pieces of information oh. of some description. So when you're writing your bullets, a good rule of thumb is no more than nine, no fewer than five. Huh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's, it's about the, like, if you consider some of the documents you can see and you've got a page of bullets and it's actually no different to looking at a page of, of paragraph text. And so if you chunk that, put it in a table. So three bullets might be about, you know, um, uh, thing X. The next three bullets are about thing Y. And you put it in a table, multiple rows with a with a heading, so Bro much easier to read. Yeah. Well, one one uh, one example that comes to mind that I've seen all, all, all the time is roles and responsibilities, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where, yeah. where they chunk it out into a table and have bullets like that. Can can you talk about? Uh, so that's really interesting. One thing that you just said. Sorry, before I move on to the the next question, was um, you know that 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 you know, uh, most people are not eloquent uh, writers, they're, they're technically driven. I think that what, you know, one thing that I gained from your book is it's not about being Shakespeare uh, as a writer, mm -hmm. it's about being measured and disciplined and, and just, uh, you know, thoughtful. How is the person yeah. going to read it? How are they going to take it? So on and so forth. Where is it going to be used? Um, yeah. Can you talk about fonts? Because that was really cool. <laughs> I, I didn't know serif you know, it made sense when serif. I read it. San, you know, Sans obviously is without serif, but <laughs> I never, you know, <laughs> some things you see a million times and, you know, you understand them <laughs> and you're like, how did I not know that? It's so obvious, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, uh, you, you carry the punchline there. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So the serif and the stand serif. So like you say, um, the sans serif is without the serif, which is usually like the little hooks and things that are on the the actual letters themselves. So if you think of an S that you've got there, you've got a usually got a serif on the on the um, the two ends of the S, or a T. You've, there's a serif on the two tops of the T and the bottom, and depending on what font you pick, they're slightly different. If it's a sans serif, you don't have those, and it's very blocky. And clean. if you think of yeah, clean, clean, blocky, bold. If you think of um, traffic signs. Uh, that's typical sans serif. It's, you, you know, um, Arial uh, font is usually 
considered sans serif um, and it's it's great for headings and so your eye perceives that slightly differently um, you don't want to read lots of text in sans serif because your eyes get tired um, and so the, um, the sans serif is actually really great for headings uh, titles um, or calling things out in in bold um, that stand out which is why you know they're used in safety signs they're used in traffic signs those sorts of things um, yeah if you look at um, like a book that's got lots of text in it so a typical like a novel um, the body of the the text is probably almost guaranteed to be a, be serif font so times new roman is a classic um, it's probably getting a bit old at the moment i think people are getting tired of, of times new roman um, but it's easy to read if there's a lot of a lot of text um, and so again you're thinking of your audience how big is this document is it a, is it a, a small document it comes back to your document design what headings fonts are we using what title fonts are we using in our in our templates uh, compared to the body text are we going to use a different text in our table headings compared to what's in the in the text it also differentiates for your eyes that there's something different happening there um, now most people will skim a page and they'll actually read they'll read the headings they'll, the headings will stand out for them and that helps them navigate so that's called signposting um, and uh, that's that's part of your document design as well, which um, includes the the font. Um, some people don't. I actually am one of the people who don't. I I don't tend to see headings as well, um, and I'll go straight to the text. Um, and I think it's the way that I speed read more than anything. But most people, I've found that I'm actually different to most people. Um, what, I, what I teach doesn't necessarily work so well for me personally, but it does seem to work, work well for the majority of people. And it's that, what are the headings? How do I call this out? And uh, signposting so people can navigate the document. All of that is around document design. Um, it's not how you frame a sentence at all, but all of that, how does this look? You know, so you, 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 you're forcing someone to look at a page or look at a screen how does it look? It needs to be something that they can uh, perceive and read easily. If they don't want to look at it because it's too hard to look at, then they're not going to read it. So it comes down to that. That's really important for compliance. <laughs> they need to read the document. So, yeah. So, so that was that was actually the last question that I had <clears throat> as far as as far as questions related to your book. Uh, I wanted to ask you. Um, I think in any any endeavor where you dive into the details of of you know it doesn't matter what you'll have you'll have naysayers who will say either it's not that serious or yep. uh, you know I mean really font five to seven bullets you know semicolon before after so on and so forth you know what what do you say to those people. Well, this is this is where you distinguish the doc dags from everyone else. Yeah. So <laughs> the the doc dags love this conversation, um, yeah. and they they get it, but they get it, they get it. So is it, away. so officially officially if 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 you've if you've made it through the hour plus of this this conversation, <laughs> you're 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 uh, you're knighted as a doc dag. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> or a potential doc dag yeah. um I, I think um yeah i um i do get that a lot and so one of the when i'm teaching this type of things one of the the slides that i use is um uh people who have 
reservations and say, well, why should I do this? You know, what's wrong with the way I write? And they don't see anything wrong with the way they write. Uh, and so that's when you start calling the problem out. And so I go back to the original. What's the problem? Look at the FDA. Oh, these are all the, oh, but that's not our place. And I said, well, if I look at your QMS, then there's issues here. And you start calling them out. And some people will always be slow to, you know, to, to get on board. Others will adopt very quickly. It's the typical change, um, change approach. Some people will get it straight away and others have to be convinced. Um, but it's just, you know, we're not taught this in university. And I think that's, that's a problem um, because it's impacting every company that we then go into because we can't write in plain language. Um, and so I, I think um, if we could head it off there or even head it off, you know, senior, senior school, um, you know, high school, senior level, um, starting to teach them about at least audience analysis and how to write differently for different audiences. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think particularly the technical guys who are not good communicators anyway. And so let, let's, you know, they might be technically brilliant. I call them um, geniuses and, uh, and um, boffins usually. So they're a technical boffin. And they are brilliant, you know, they, they are absolutely brilliant, but they can't communicate to save themselves. Um, and unfortunately, we do have a lot of those, those people in parts of our business, and really, they're not going to be brilliant communicators. It's just not part of their nature. And it's understanding that helping them get to a certain stage so that they're, they're not frustrated, um, and, and then um, putting in some sort of either a, a, um, someone who also understands but is a better communicator and getting them to do the writing, um, and, you know, this comes back to who's doing the writing. And some people probably shouldn't be doing much of the writing. They can be the boffins and they can, uh, you know, they can, they can write a specification or something like that. Um, and, and those sort of highly technical documents. But when it comes to a, a procedure or training material or those sorts of things, you actually want someone who is a communicator. Uh, I sometimes do this exercise where <clears throat> I'll look at a book and think, you know, what would I title this book based on, you know, me just reading it? And one of the things, especially as I was going through the the book, I mean, you you uh, you went through, I think, scrupulous detail, you know, some things that were questions that I thought of before, never got answered, other questions that I never, <laughs> never, never even thought to ask. And, you know, I, I draw the parallel. There's a really famous book called Atomic Habits. Have you heard of it? Yep. Yeah. Have, yeah. What, I think the, the, the first chapter talks about the British cycling team and how uh, they were they were not doing very well and they got a new head coach and the head coach influenced them to try to become 1% better each day, each training session. And so they started yep. focusing on these little meticulous details and I don't know where they blew up and became, you know, yep. fantastic. And I think each each one of the little details in and of themselves probably won't make your documentation better, but the combination, the one percent yes. of you know now my now I'm using a, a certain font for headings, other for the body. I'm focusing on the 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 the, the front matter, not taking up too much before I get to the, the get to the meat of the procedure, yep. and 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 the back matter not being you know so far behind that it's you know buried in the 
in the in the dust and you know so on and so forth. I mean, there's there, there's I'm not going to list the whole book by the book and read it. It's it's great, but um, you know I think of I think of a lot of the tools and tips in your book as that is each 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 one thing in and of itself won't save you in an audit, but or or won't save yep. you in terms of people executing on it. But uh, the combination of all of them, ooh. You know, that's, that's, yeah. that's where the magic happens. So I yeah. wanted to ask you, 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 you spend, a, a, I guess, any final thoughts on your book before you, before we move on? Um, I, 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 I will it. say, sorry, sorry, apologies. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut you off, not to be rude. Uh, <laughs> by, by this book, I found it to be uh, tremendously helpful. I think that uh, it's, it's sort of a must read type book for, for people in our industry. Um, you may connect with some sections more than others, but I think just sort of the comprehensiveness around the, the plain language procedures. Oh, what I was going to say is I sometimes go through an exercise of what would I call this book if I were just renaming it? not changing any of yep. the content. And, uh, you know, the thing that I came up with was habits of clear technical writers. That's cool. what I came up with. Yeah. So, you yep. know, that's, that's what I think of. There's a lot of real easy, actionable things, you know, I read it and, and yep. you know, instant, it's yep. like, a, it's like, a, I do different things. I do things yep. differently now that I read it. You know? <laughs> well, my mission is complete <laughs> yeah. with me, yeah. with me, you know, you, you change one person. um yeah i think um yeah um i think the only thing i would probably say is like i i tend to now use it as a handbook so if i'm if i'm going into uh, a client and they need technical writing training or they need you know key people need to learn how to write i will quite often gift them the the book um and say okay read it we're now going to talk about it um and it becomes a handbook it sits on their their shelf with you know they're at their computer and they go oh how do do we do that again they pull it down and they're using it as a handbook um and i think that in itself is is tremendous feedback that people are using it that way um the other thing i guess i would say is i've converted it into a course so um you know if people are loving it and they do want to be coached uh in this type of thing then they can actually do the course with me so that's it. At, uh, can I do a plug? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, www.qsnacademy.com.au. Um, and it's a 16 module course which follows the book. Um, and you'll get live a training with me. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, you'll come out the other end a much better writer. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, you know, one, one, and and we'll add that to the show notes. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, um, you know, sort of like uh, boiling the ocean here, but I'll take a go at it anyways. Um, (laughs) There's always, there's always a push pull, right? Uh, You take too long to review documents. You take too long to write them, so on and so forth. What does an efficient document review approval process look like (laughs) in world-class organizations? And have you seen it done perfectly anywhere or near perfect? Um, I've seen it done very well. um, And I think that's probably good enough. Um, I don't think think perfect's in document review i don't know the perfect to be striven for strived for um and (laughs) striven a word it's like gobbledygook um (laughs) yes perfect perfect we'll we'll, we'll strike perfect from the record and we'll we'll call it near perfect (laughs) near perfect um i think the big key uh in document review particularly when you're working with smes who are doing a review first before it goes to an approval which is probably what you should do um is keeping it to two reviews 
So if you if you tell your reviewers that I'm doing two reviews, um, and then we either stop and we have to rework the process or it continues to approval. The reason you do that is if you just get stuck in, because people just get stuck in review um, and you get this document churn and it goes for months and it's just like, what are you doing, guys? You know, you've can got your process. Can you, uh, I guess before you move on, can you explain the two reviews again? It didn't click for me. Yeah. So you've got your SME review. Yeah. Uh, where you're working with your technical people to make sure that the content is correct from a technical aspect. Now, they may, they may try and rewrite what you're writing so it's going from plain language into technical babble and you need to, to kindly instruct them to not do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you would be the expert in, in technical writing. They're the expert in the, in the process or the product. So just be clear on roles and responsibilities up front. Um, get them to review it. Are they okay with it? Does it work? Could you train someone on it? Um, maybe go and watch them do it. All of that activity needs to be done before you, you know, you're doing a review. Do one first review with them. So, and they and instruct them to do a detailed review. It's no good doing um, a cursory first review uh, because you're only going to do it, do another one afterwards. You don't want to get to a second review and have to do a complete rewrite. That's a waste of your time. Um, so to cut that off, just define what your reviews are. Up front, I need a first detailed review. I need you to go in and, and check everything. I need you to check the details, et cetera, et cetera. Now, they'll have a whinge, um, but you do need to make sure that you're continually working this way if you are working with SMEs all the time. The second review is the polish. So you make changes and amendments based on their first review. You might include QA um, in if it's if it's something that's... that's um, you know, either new or it's a big change or something like that. Include a QA reviewer. Um, I when I was uh, when I'm working with with big changes, I always loop QA in. So there's usually one person within QA. It might just be a conversation and say, you know, knock knock. Can I have five minutes? Just describe what you're doing. Blah blah blah. Do you want to see it or not? And give them the option. They know what's going on, so there's no surprises. Um, hopefully. Your second review with your SMEs is polish. And so then you're, you know, you're finding, making sure your references are right. You're making everything's okay. It's ready to go. Then it goes for approval. So usually one technical approver and one, one QA approver, you might have more, whichever. That's another problem. If you've got five approvers for a procedure, that's an issue. Might be different for a validation document, but I would just say, I want to, I want to prepare a verifier and an approver. So then hopefully your technical verifier is also someone who's either in the SME team or has got a person, a contact in that SME team. And then it goes to QA for approval. Keep it lean and mean and define that review period. So, and the other thing is write in plain language. If they have to wade through your document and they don't understand it and they've got to come, you know, it takes them hours to read it, then you're not writing it well. Understood. And so you're you're drawing a distinction here between uh, review and approval, and and, and yeah. you think the first the first review should be uh, a sort of a form uh, a an informal review. The second one is a little more formal, where you're polishing, and then you move into yeah. the 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 formal approval. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, any other any other feedback and tips in terms of streamlining? Um. 
I guess it also depends on what you're using. So if you're using an EQMS, which is rigid and doesn't allow you to step back or step out of the system to be able to do a, <clears throat> a big um, a big change or a big big uh, big way you're doing review, I, I would tend to just do it then as a meeting. And, uh, and so there are always ways around it, but you need to get face-to-face -face with people. You need to get them process mapping or you need to get them um, actually involved. If, if, if you've got the situation where, you know, they're technical people who don't like to talk to each other, they just like to email each other, that's a problem as well. And so if you can get people in a meeting, you can usually resolve 90% of the issues. Whereas if they're emailing backwards and forwards, it just escalates emotion yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and people get wound up. And it's just like, oh, come on, guys, time out. Let's, let's have a meeting. Let's get it all sorted and then done and dusted. Yeah, it turns the heat up for sure. Um, any, any, I, I guess, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. Besides, besides reading your book, and besides, uh, you know, t taking a course on technical writing, do you have any mantras or high level or, you know, uh, things, you know, things that you would tell, uh, you know, a person that's entering the industry, a lens that they should look through, you know, a type of mantra in terms of technical writing? Yeah, I think there's a couple. I think uh, one is who's your audience, understand you, or write for your audience. And remember your auditor is also a part of your audience. Process map the process so that you can make sure that whatever you're writing aligns with what's done in practice. And I think get the document design right. And so they are, they are the big three. If you do those, you're going to have a much better QMS. Um, and, and then I think the learning of the writing sentences in plain language comes as you go. But I think if you get the structure kind of right, you know, you, you're probably 70% of the way there. People can, you know, you've got signposting. People can understand the navigation of the document. They can understand what you're trying to say because they're in your audience. Um, whereas the specifics of being, you know, plain language, um, that will come as you practice. As, as we uh, close out here, uh, I wanted to ask about, uh, what are some books that you give as gifts besides your own? Again, I'm going to plug your book again and say that if you, if you work in a regulated industry, I think you, I think you should read it. Um, yeah. Besides that. <laughs> um, I do tend to I gift my own. Um, I've yeah. got a couple that I'm reading at the moment. Um, I was going to say, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool, huh? Giving away your own book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I like this one by, you probably can't read it. It's John Acuff's uh, latest book called Soundtracks. Soundtracks. Uh, and so Soundtracks. And it's, it's about um, the soundtracks that run in, it's run in our head um, and turning them off, basically. So, so how we get in our own way. Um, and uh, it's, he's, he's a funny guy. And so um, I recommend that. So it's Soundtracks, The Surprise Solution to Overthinking. Uh -huh. So that's that's a cool book and it's nice and easy to read. And I think if you implement his activities that is in there, you'll start to recognize in your own thinking day to day that there's all these ways that you're getting in your own way. Um, so, yeah, so that's a good one. And I'm also reading from a business point of view, I'm reading Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson. And this is this is brilliant as well. So he's got three books. So expert, uh, he's got .com secrets. 
traffic secrets and expert secrets. So anyone who's in business um, and wanting to market and uh, and reach their reach their clients, then they're excellent. And I think one that I do definitely give as gift as a gift is an Australian guy called uh, Scott Pape, and he's written a book called The Bear Investor, and that's for mum and dads and families um, who just want to get ahead with just some basic financial stuff. And he's he's a funny guy too. And so he went through the um, the Black Saturday bushfires here uh, 13 years ago, lost his house, lost his farm. Um, and uh, it's his amazing story. And now he's he's a multimillionaire. He's got his, his homes re rebuilt, his flocks restocked um, and and everything. So that's a good read. Yeah, excellent. We get we got a three for one there. Um, there you I, uh, you know, what I, what I found, especially as you know, after becoming a parent is, uh, you know, anything you can do to avoid overthinking will serve you right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, what is something you're excited about that's coming up? I am doing a whole pile of free training this year. So at the end of every month, um, I'm doing a one hour training session and collectively it's kind of like QMS secrets um, and so uh, last last month so actually last Friday we did a process mapping training uh, based on everything that's, that's actually in the book and that went remarkably well that went, went well this uh, this this month in it's now in February um, so that is we're, we're going to look at how do you pick an EQMS because I get asked that all the time yeah what's a good system and it's just like well you know what are your requirements <laughs> so no lightning bolt what do you need <laughs> so um and so we're going to look at a lot of those sorts of things i'm going to do one on, on um, implementing a quality culture uh, a mature quality culture let's look at what quality metrics what are they about why do i need them um how do i put them in place what do i do with them when they're there um those sorts of things um and so yeah i, I there's a heap of those coming up so i think uh, watch out for my LinkedIn posts. So every every month I'll be plugging a um, a registration for that. So if you want some free training around that, um, or you just want to get to know me a little bit better, then you can hop on there for free. So that that was my last question. How can people reach you? Yeah. So um, LinkedIn's always very very good. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I post usually three or four times a week. So I'm I'm trying to get some content out there this year. Um, you can email me, so Kathy with a K, so Kathy at qualitysystemsnow.com.au. Uh, you can look at my company website, Quality Systems Now, so www.qualitysystemsnow.com. Don't forget the au.au. Um, <laughs> you can also look at my training um, platform as well. So that's uh, QSN Academy, and we gave that before. They're probably the easiest ways. Yeah, excellent. Well, uh, thank you for coming on, Kathy. I, I really appreciated your book. Uh, it definitely changed the way that I look at uh, documentation for sure. And uh, I appreciate the work that you put together to uh, uh, put pen to paper, literally. Yep. Um, I'm really happy to have had you on the show. Any thank closing thoughts? Uh, it's been a blast. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Combinate Podcast. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please share. Please send any feedback you have to CombinatePodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again.